0: verse is long Psalm 10 and we'll begin in verse number 1 that's always the best place to start as we had a, a evangelist years ago his name was uh, Ron Sexton who came to our church and uh, he would write uh, Christian music and he played a guitar and he would preach and uh, he always told me he said I I usually start my songs at the beginning because if I started in the middle by the time I was halfway done I'd be at the end so we, uh, we'll start at verse 1, okay? Not in the middle of it. All right, Psalm one or Psalm 10, verse 1. Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. <clears throat> the wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. His ways are also grievous; by judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he puffeth at them. He that saith in his heart, "I shall not be moved," for I shall never be in adversity, his mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. He he sitting in the lurking places, sitteth in the lurking places of the villages, in the secret places doth he murder. In the innocent, his eyes are privily set against the poor. He lieth in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lieth in wait to catch the poor. He doth catch the poor when he draweth him uh, him into his net. He croucheth and humbleth himself that the poor may fall by his strong ones. He hath said in his heart, God hath forgotten. He hideth his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up thine hand. Forget not the humble. Wherefore doth the wicked contemn God? He hath said in his heart, Thou wilt not require it. Thou hast seen it, for thou beholdest mischief and spite, to requite it by thy hand. The poor committeth himself unto thee, thou art the helper of the fatherless. Break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil man, seek out his wickedness, till thou find none. The Lord is king forever and ever, the heathen are perished out of his land." Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble, thou wilt prepare their heart, thou wilt cause thine ear to hear, to judge the fatherless and, oppre- and the oppressed, and the man that the man of the earth may no more oppress. There's not a title to this particular psalm that was given uh, like many of the psalms that were titled. <clears throat> Some people have called this the cry of the oppressed. And uh, certainly you can see how that theme seems to run through this psalm. Uh, It appears to be that, and it seems like even in the first part of the Psalms that we've already studied, uh, some of the Psalms are intended or seem to be intended to be paired together. And this is no different. It seems like uh, chapter number 10 or Psalm 10 um, seems to need to be paired with Psalm 9. And so if you read the two of them together, um, they kind of support each other, uh, kind of supplement each other and um, bring some more sense to some things. But uh, they, uh, there's, a cry, there, there's an opening cry of the oppressed in verse number 1, and then uh, there's one other verse, and that's verse number 12, that kind of stands alone. So verse 1 and verse 12 are kind of independent cries of uh, somebody who's oppressed crying out to God. And then other than those two verses, uh, the psalm can be divided into three main uh, sections. And uh, that would be verses 2 to 11. Verses 2 to 11. And the psalmist in verses 2 to 11 <coughs> brings out the character and the deeds uh, of the wicked or of the oppressor, if you will. Um, and so he talks about their, not only the nature, their nature, but also the things that they do because of their nature. And then the second section is found in verses 13 to 15. And in these verses, uh, the psalmist, uh, by faith, acknowledges the fact that God does know, that God does see what they're doing, and that certain judgment is going to come. And there's a a, a, a declaration, if you will, of faith in God moving on the behalf of those that were oppressed. And then verses 16 to 18, uh, we find just a a joyous, uh, just their... very very happy uh, at what God is going to do and the fact that He is the defender of the fatherless, the fact that He is uh, working on behalf of the oppressed. <clears throat> and so these are kind of the three main divisions of the psalm, again, excluding verse 1 and verse 12, which are uh, basically just as a single verse uh, crying out to God. And uh, the psalm is basically intended uh, for those that are oppressed by the wicked, those that are um, persecuted by the wicked, uh, the psalm is intended to inspire them to pray and to give praise for uh, God's working. And uh, you'll see that the psalmist brings both of those themes out in this particular psalm uh, as we go through it. So let's start in verse number one, and uh, we're going to look at a few other passages today uh, to bring some... um, some undergirding support to some of the concepts and thoughts uh, that are brought out in this psalm. Verse 1 is kind of its standalone verse. This is the cry. It's kind of the thesis statement. If you were writing a term paper, it would be kind of the underlying um, reason that the psalm was written. is found in verse number 1. As the psalmist exclaims this, Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou, self, thyself, thou thyself in times of trouble? Now, one thing for us to understand, and this is done often through the Psalms, is the psalmist will bring uh, statements that um, will say like, Awake, O Lord, or uh, incline thine ear, or uh, something along those lines. And when we read verse 1, we kind of see um, an implication that uh, God is kind of distant, that God is not interested in his affairs at the point of him crying out to him, that God is not moving on his behalf. And I want you to understand this, that uh, God, and, and I don't think, <laughs> I know we're preaching to the Sunday morning crowd here, but God is omniscient. God knows everything, and He is intimately involved in every person's life. The Bible speaks to the fact that even a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without Him knowing it. Uh, the fact that He knows the number of the hairs on your head. That's, that's how intimately God knows you. And yet the psalmist brings to light in this, in this cry. He says, Why standest thou far off? O Lord, why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? And I wrote a couple notes down regarding this, that um, there are two times that people that are saved can be oppressed, at least two two major times that we find in Scripture. One of them is when God is trying or testing our faith. We find this in the book of Job. Uh, God was actually, uh, the, the testing that Job went through, was God bragging on the fact that Job was faithful? That God, that Job was a an upright man, one who feared God and eschewed evil. And so, there are times that oppression comes into our life um, for the sake of God testing or strengthening our faith, causing us to grow. The other one is when we're not doing what we're supposed to do. The Bible speaks of the fact that there are times that God allows oppression into our lives, or. or Uh, testing in our lives or correction in our lives, and it's the chastening hand of God. And uh, it's very important to know that when these times of life come, uh, things don't go the way we're we're expecting to. We're going through some really dark valleys. Uh, It's important for us to know that it can be either one of those two. And the only way that we can know is to spend some time with the Lord in prayer, asking him to examine our hearts and allowing us to examine our hearts and find out, Lord, are there some things that you're chasing me for in my life? And if so, if I don't see them, make them apparent to me. Or am I living the way I should, and this is just a testing of my faith, something that is the growing of my faith? Now, I will say this, that either one of those two will cause you to feel the way the psalmist does here. Uh, he feels like the Lord is standing afar off. Um those that are being oppressed here uh, feel like the Lord is is hiding Himself. He's not um, He's not actively at work on their behalf. He's not being their defender uh, as they know that He should be. And I want you to realize that, that that is a typical response to those that are going through suffering. Sometimes it is hard while the suffering is going on to see God's presence. And it's interesting to note here that Uh, The psalmist is not uh, crying out about his trouble. The trouble doesn't bother him as much as what seems to be the lack of the presence of God in his life. That's what troubles him more than anything. And oftentimes when we're going through valleys, God is there. God is actively involved in your life. God is intimately involved in your life. But sometimes going through that suffering causes us to feel like he's not. And this is what the psalmist is crying out about. Um, If we're going through a testing of our faith, then it would make sense uh, that God would allow that to to, to go through its course, because the whole purpose is to see our response to that that trial. I remember um, when my oldest daughter bought her first car, uh, she went down here to... (coughs) <coughs> One of the uh, car used car dealerships here in town in Desoto, and we went down there. We bought her a car. She had to go back to college a couple of days later, or back to Florida. <coughs> Excuse me, a couple days later, and uh, she drove it for a day or two. And that she noticed the second day that she had it while we were up here that when somebody got in her passenger side front seat, that the carpet was soaking wet. I mean, soaking wet, and she calls me all upset. Dad, what's going on? What's wrong with my car? And, um, and what had happened was a a, 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 vent that, that drained out the condensation from the air conditioner had stopped up and it was backing up into the car and flooding that car. She had about a half inch of water in the, and, and she thought, oh boy, did I buy a lemon here? You know? And she's like, what do I do? And, and what she was wanting me to do was to go down to the car dealership and take the car down there and get it fixed for her. But, She was getting older and getting out on her own in life. And I said, well, sis, you need to call the salesman and tell him what's going on and ask him what can be done. She's like, well, Dad, can you do that? You know how kids are. You know, they're growing up. And I said, no, you're responsible. You're growing up. You need to go do this and get it taken care of. And after about five minutes of going back and forth, she said, okay. And so she hangs up the phone. The moment she hung up the phone, I'm on the phone speed dialing the salesman. Now, I did not tell my daughter that. And I called the salesman. I said, hey, my daughter's getting ready to call you. I said, "She's it's her first time buying a car. I want her to learn how to deal with you directly, so let her do that. Don't let her know I've called you. But I said, whatever it takes to get the car fixed, fix it. And kind of did that. And so sure enough, she did. She went down there. She called me back about. Uh, an hour or two later, she's like, Dad, you wouldn't believe this guy was so nice and he took care of everything. Everything was fixed perfect. And I said, well, I'm glad to hear that. And and it gave her some strength in life the next time she had a problem to be like, I can go and deal with this. This was, I don't know, six years ago, five years ago. This week, uh, about three days ago, I was talking to her. I finally told her that I did that. But she didn't know that I was there watching out for her. She needed to go through it so she could grow. I use that illustration because when we're going through a time of testing, it stands to reason that God will let that testing go through because the whole purpose is for us to grow. And not always will he take the trouble away or the oppression away, but he will strengthen us. He'll give us the grace to go through it. And at the end of the day, God is still our defender. Uh, And so it makes sense on that If it's our chastening It also makes sense That God would not show himself Initially Uh, Somebody wrote this uh, And I I was reading it in relation To this particular psalm They said a smiling face And a rod are not fit companions You think of the times You were disciplined as a child Maybe your parents uh, took a switch Or a belt and gave you a spanking for something Uh, We called them whoopings down in Florida. And uh, my dad wasn't cutting up and joking with me when he disciplined me. It wasn't the comfort that came during the time of chastening. The comfort came after the chastening. And the Bible tells us uh, very clearly that, uh, well, in fact, let's just turn there for a minute. Hebrews chapter 12, hold your place here for a minute. We're going to come back. But let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I want you to see the biblical principle of this because I believe there's a great principle at play in this verse. Hebrews chapter 12, and uh, we'll read verse number 11. The writer of Hebrews makes this statement, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 11. He says, Now no chastening for the present, for the present, in other words, while it's going on, No chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. And the chastening of God oftentimes uh, needs to be something that is not joyous to us. It's grievous to us while we're going through it. Nevertheless, I want you to notice this. Nevertheless, what's the next word here? Afterward, it yieldeth the what? Peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby so keeping that in mind for the psalmist to cry out why standest thou far off while he's going through this oppression of the wicked whether it was his testing or whether it was his chastening it would make reason for God to allow that oppression to go on and these guys that go out here and they'll stand in in churches today and they'll say that God's will is for Christians to never suffer Uh, God's will is for them to never have to go through things. No, that's not. God never promised that there would not be suffering. In fact, the Bible teaches us quite the opposite, that those that will live godly in Christ Jesus, he makes this statement, shall suffer persecution. Uh, But what he does do is he promises the joy and the grace and the strength to bear it and to go through it. And again, the psalmist here is not decrying the trouble. He's decrying the fact that it seems that God's presence is not there. And that to him is more troubling than the oppression itself. And I think that ought to be the truth of all of us. Uh, The oppression is bad enough to go through it. But to go through it without knowing God's presence is close by. And we we need to keep this in mind that by faith we trust that God is always there no matter what the trial is. You say, well, Pastor, it doesn't seem like he's there. I I pray, and I don't seem to get an answer from him. I don't seem to get any relief from this. As we read through this psalm, you'll understand where the psalmist is coming from here, and I believe it ought to be the same cry of our hearts to have this statement of faith that we believe that even though I don't feel like he's near, he is near. He is my defender. Verse number 2, he says this, "...the wicked in his pride..." doth persecute the poor, let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. There's two accusations that are given here. We're going to see in the next few verses between verse number two and verse number six, or verse number uh, six or so, (coughs) we're going to see uh, an accusation made against the wicked, uh, and we're going to see evidences given towards that accusation. So, the first two things we find are in verse number two. He accuses the wicked, of two things. He accuses them, first of all, of pride. And then secondly, he accuses them of, uh, of evil deeds or tyranny or oppression. Okay? So we find that there's pride that is given here, and then there is the actions that that produces. And uh, it's very interesting to note this, that one is the root of the problem, the other is the fruit of the problem. Pride is the reason that it happens. The deeds are the fruit of this wicked pride that is in this man's heart. Um, and so this prayer, you know, some people would say, well, uh, the psalmist is praying for some pretty strong things to happen to the wicked. That's, is, that, is that really Christian to pray for his destruction? Well, the, the prayer against the wicked in this case is very reasonable. And he's not praying for his own vindication. He's praying for God's righteous judgment. And as we get down into the end of this particular psalm, if we get there this week, you're going to see that there is two standards of morality that are contrasted. One of them is the morality that comes from the pride of the wicked. And they believe that their actions are justified. Every man does that which is right in their own eyes, kind of an attitude. So much so that they even defy the fact that God will ever bring judgment on them. They, they say he's not going to do it. He doesn't see it. He's not going to bring judgment. And then there is the righteous judgment of God that sees all, that knows all, and will bring judgment. And those two are going to be contrasted a little bit later as we get down into this psalm. But it's important to note here at the very beginning, the psalmist then accuses the wicked of pride and his, his uh, evil deeds, if you will, uh, the persecution, the oppression that is the result of that pride. And uh, so he makes the accusation here in verse number 2. And he says, uh, the wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. And that's a pretty stern request uh, of the psalmist. Some people say, well, that's just not a Christian attitude to have. In this case, yes, it is. He's asking for God's righteous judgment to be taken. Verse 3, For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire, and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord, notice this phrase, abhorreth. So this is why this prayer is reasonable. This is why this prayer is just. Um, because this this wicked man not only is doing these things, but he is boasting of the wicked deeds that he's doing. He he takes pride in them. Um, and, and this is, again, we're, we're starting to see the accusation being made in, in verse 2 of his pride. Verse 3, he, he's impeached by his own testimony. Uh, the fact that he uh, takes pride, he boasts of his heart's desire. He, he's very vocal about it. He, he brags about it. Um, he's boasting. And then also the Bible says here that he is covetous. Uh, the Bible says that he blesseth the covetous. And the idea that he uh, covets the things of the poor. He wants the things of the poor. He's trying to cheat them. He's trying to... Uh, uh, to uh, Take advantage of them, to oppress them. And uh, bragging sinners are the worst and most contemptible of men, someone wrote. Bragging sinners are the worst and most contemptible of men. When their filthy desire becomes the theme of their boastings. I hope that God will deliver us to never brag about the sins that we do have. The wicked are such as do those things. They're the ones that the Lord, the Bible says, abhorreth their attitude, their character. Because their character is filled with pride, boasts of the things that they're doing, justifies the things that they're doing, tries to make it sound like they're the ones that are the right and the just, and they boast about these things. Their pride raises up in their hearts. And the Bible says that the Lord abhors them. In verse number four, he says, The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all of his thoughts. You ever notice this? That a proud heart usually is shown by a proud countenance, a proud look. The Bible says that there are seven things, uh, six things that the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination. You know what the very first one, at the top of the list is? A proud look. A proud look. Notice what he says in verse 4. The wicked, through the pride of his what? Countenance. There's an arrogance of heart that this man is not even convicted of his sin. He is past feeling. The oppression that he's, he's committing, the, the atrocities that he's committing on the poor, There's no there's no even conviction there. There's no pricking of the heart. In his pride, his countenance is haughty, his eyes uplifted. And again, you say, well, uh, some people would say, well, the prayer that the psalmist is praying for the wicked to be judged and to be destroyed, isn't that a little bit harsh? No, this is a man who's beyond feeling. This is a man whose pride is ruling his morality. And our world is full of people that will do this. Um, Their proud heart will cause a proud look. And the proud look is the result of an unrepentant attitude. Uh, the Bible refers to, in several places, a person called a scorner. Uh, in fact, in Proverbs, it tells you that it tells us that we're to turn out a scorner. Uh, we're not to have any part with him. And yet we read in Scripture if a brother be overtaken and a fault, you with your spiritual restore such one, how do you know? when you should reach out and try to restore that person and when you should turn them out. And I believe a very clear distinction is given in Scripture of those that are uh, haughty, proud, arrogant in their wickedness. They don't care who sees it. They defy God in it. And there's no softness of heart. There's no conviction of their sin. There's no remorse in in their wickedness. And I believe that's what the Bible refers to very clearly as a scorner. It says to strike a scorner. And the simple will beware. Um, in fact, in uh, Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Those that would defy God, arrogantly, proud. Uh, and so, uh, these these are the things that are characterizing. You know, the, the accusation made in verse 2 of his pride and his evil deeds, his oppression, are now being... Uh, given evidence so that by the time the psalmist is done with the character of the wicked, uh, he has certainly been proven in these two accusations. And so the wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. Somebody wrote this about this verse. He said, it is hard to pray with a stiff neck and an unbended knee. Have you ever noticed that? It is hard to pray with a stiff neck and an unbended knee. I would go so far as to say this. It's impossible to pray with a hard heart, a stiff neck, and an unbended knee. And uh, this is a man who does not seek after God. He is God is not in, not just some of his, I mean, God is not in any of his thoughts. All the thoughts that he has, God is not in them. And uh, certainly uh, something to to be aware of. Verse number 5. His ways are always grievous. Not just some of the time, but always grievous. Thy judgments are far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he puffeth at them. Um, He makes everybody around him miserable. Everything he does, all of his actions, all of his deeds are grievous. They're hurtful. Uh, they're spiteful. Um, I got to keep an eye on the time here. I don't want to do with my phone. <laughs> okay, ten thirty-nine. All right. Uh, so the, these uh, the, the the idea that um, he he's not even in the least bit convicted of his, his actions. Uh, he doesn't care who he hurts. In fact, the more he hurts, the more he oppresses, the gladder and the, the, the gladder the more glad he gets. Uh, i got to get my proper English there. Uh, but the whole purpose of his of his deeds is to bring oppression and grief to those that are poor, those that are simple, those that are the fatherless. And, uh, and then his pride, notice he says here in verse 5, he says, thy, uh, thy judgments are far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he puffeth at them. Uh, he doesn't even consider God's judgments to be of concern to him. And so this prideful, haughty attitude that he has in his oppressiveness Causes him to kind of sit as his own God Uh, He determines his own morality What's right, what's wrong Um, He does that which is right seemingly in his own eyes Um, Hold your place here for a minute We're going to look at two more passages And we'll probably end there and pick up there next week And have to spend two weeks on this psalm But um, look with me in Hebrews chapter number uh, 12. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 5, excuse me, and verse number 11 and 12. Hebrews chapter (coughs) 5. The writer of Hebrews says this, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised, to discern both good and evil. The question comes to mind, and that is this. Is it possible for a Christian even, not just the wicked, but the Christians even, is it possible for a person to think that something is right and it to actually be wrong? We oftentimes think of that, and we say, yes, boy, the unsaved are like that. What about me? What about you? Are there times that I think something is right come to find out it was wrong? My senses have not been exercised. What does that mean? Hebrews chapter 5, as he gets down here in verse numbers 14, says, But strong meat belongs to them who are, that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised. Like a man pumping iron, he uses it. Well, reason of use of what? Well, he he tells us that in the previous verses. Notice in verse number 13. For everyone that uh, uh, that useth milk is unskillful in the what? Word of righteousness. So the reason of use is in reference to us using the word of righteousness as our measuring stick to determine what is right and what is wrong. It causes us to grow and to mature and have strong meat from the word of righteousness that helps us to have discernment. This man that we're talking about here in Psalm 10 is a man who thinks that what he's doing is right. He has convinced not only himself, but works and labors very hard to convince others of the same thing, that the things he's doing is right. And what they'll do is, and the Bible speaks of this, it says, Woe unto them! (coughs) <coughs> that calls evil good, call evil good, and good evil. We're living in a day where a lot of this is going on. And they believe that they are on the moral higher ground. People that are out here promoting uh, homosexuality and all that uh, the rainbow movement out there of, of all these, these uh, deviant people, moral uh, wise. They, they come and they say, We're the champions of those people. And by doing this, they're bragging on themselves out of the pride of their hearts that they are the morally superior. And what they've done is they've set themselves up as the God in their life that determines what is morally right and what is morally wrong. That is never to be the case. What determines what is right and what is wrong must always come back to the Scriptures. God is the source of morality. God is the one that determines what is right. And what is wrong Not what I think about something Or how I feel about something Here's this man This wicked man That we've been talking about In Psalm 10 That is prideful Of his own wickedness And justifies it Not only to his own heart But also to the He tries to justify it To those that are outside Of his own realm of influence To try to make it look like He's the champion of the poor He's the one that's got Their, 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 uh, their well-being As his concern and yet the truth is he's the very enemy. And uh, he's a ravening wolf. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And we see a lot of that going on today in our society. People that claim to have the moral high ground say, well, we're the champion of the, the poor and the, the outcast, And the truth is they're the ones that are causing the problems of the poor and the outcast. The ravening wolves. Look with me in Proverbs chapter 14. <coughs> Proverbs chapter 14. Two different times this statement is made in Scripture with only one word being different in it. And and I want you to understand something. I've I've thought this and felt this for very many years and, and believe it very strongly that unlike when I was in college trying to write my term papers, God was not trying to just write words to fill up a book. If something is said, God intended it to be said. And if he says it twice, it seems like he has put an unusual emphasis on that principle. Because he wasn't just wasting space here. He wasn't just writing words to write words. And he does this in Proverbs 14, verse 12. It says this, There is a way which seemeth, notice this, right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. These wicked, in their pride, sit as their own God, their own standard of morality, and it seems right to them because of their pride, their haughtiness. Look with me in Proverbs chapter 16, verse number 25. We find the same same idea, the same thought. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. It is possible, even for Christians, according to Hebrews chapter 5, apparently, it is possible even for Christians to not have discernment between right and wrong. Because we don't exercise the word of righteousness the way we should. It's possible for us to believe something to be right and it to actually be wrong simply because we've not spent the time in this book to have our senses exercised. By reason of use. To have our senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Uh, we're going to go ahead and end there today. We'll pick up in Psalm 6 uh, next week. Uh, in fact, I'll just go ahead and tell you. In Psalm 6, he just basically wraps up the conclusion. He's now stated the accusation of pride and the oppressive deeds. He's now spent several verses laying out the evidence of this man's character. And in verse number 6, he brings a conclusion to the accusation that was made in verse number 2. Now, that was on the issue of pride. And when we get to verse number 7, down through verse number 11, he's going to deal with the issue of the man's deeds. And again, he's going to lay out evidence to prove that. And so, uh, try to uh, keep all that in mind. If you want to read ahead, that's fine. And try to uh, go through some of this, and it might be a help to you. But uh, as God's people, Uh, We need to know when when oppression comes, when persecution comes, trials come, we need to know, Lord, is this your chastening uh, or is this your testing? And I believe that we need to find that out fairly early on in the trial. Uh, If it's just chastening, I certainly don't want to continue going through it simply because I've not taken the time to find out. If it's just testing, then I want to know that early on too. And above all, we need to keep in mind that as his children, as those who have trusted him as their Savior, that even though God's presence may not seem to be there, in our opinion, it always is. He is the defender of the fatherless. He's the one that comes to the aid of those that are oppressed. It may not be during the time of trial, but it will happen, and we need to have faith in that. All right, let's stand together and we we'll dismiss. be dismissed. Father, we do thank You for Your Word, how it instructs us and guides us. I pray that You will bless the time that we have spent in the Psalms.